I'll ask you to turn your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy. Second Timothy, we're in chapter 2 as we move along in our series from Paul's second letter here. It's found in Pew Bibles on page 996. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, what happens if church leaders ignore people who are causing trouble in the church? Two, what are some ways Paul describes a servant of God who wants to correct someone? Three, what should someone do if they realize they have been believing and teaching things about God and Jesus that are not true? Second Timothy, chapter 2. We'll begin reading in, actually, let's begin reading in verse 20. Our focus is on verses 23 to 26. And this is the word of God. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There ends a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the way that you've revealed all that we need to know for faith and life in your scriptures. And Lord, we pray now as we have just read from your powerful word and move our attention to the preaching of your word, we pray for a special measure of your Holy Spirit to help the preacher and help all of us who will hear this morning. Minister to us, we pray, by your word and by your spirit. As we come to you in Jesus' name, amen. The primary concern of the church is to make sure that the gospel is known. Uh, When I say the gospel, that is all of scripture to both edify God's people and also to call sinners to repent. That requires not only guarding the gospel against error, but it requires presenting it in an effective manner. It's especially important for Timothy as leader in the church at Ephesus to make sure that he is doing that. It's important for the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and for that matter, anywhere in the church, to make sure that they're guarding the gospel and presenting it in an effective manner. But it's not just for preachers and teachers and leaders. It's for everyone It's not only for clergy, but it's for all of us. That is assuming that we're engaging people with God's word, which we should be doing. 
In fact, if we're never talking to people about spiritual things, things about God's word, then, then something's wrong. That's not okay. But if we're engaging people with the word, there are going to be times when there is trouble. People are going to push back. There are going to be annoyances when people just like to see us get confused. Uh, there is going to be issues of matters of faith with our neighbors, if we're interacting with them, with our friends, uh, with our own family members, maybe even right within the church where we'll have a dispute over something. We need to be ready to not only stand firm on the scriptures, but to do so in an effective manner. My recommendation overall is to do this, to stay calm, trust God, trust his word, trust the work of the Holy Spirit, and be prepared, and be prepared to do what's right, even in the face of great challenges. And Paul is warning Timothy of great challenges, that there will be contentious influencers in the church. He's already dealt with that. There will be troublemakers in the church. That's the problem. I've come across many in my experience as a pastor over the years that will just try to stir things up, causing trouble, engaging in things, wanting you to engage in things that just are not worthwhile. Uh, come across things that are as much about attitude as about error. There will be things like that in the church and in your life. There will be people who embrace error Paul has already addressed serious heresy, false teaching, and obviously that needs to be dealt with in the church. Those people need to be put out of the church. But then there are others who just want to argue and cause trouble. It's interesting that Paul says here they have these, these arguments, foolish, ignorant controversies. Foolish, ignorant controversies. The word that he uses there is the word from which we get our word, moron. They're just stupid arguments that don't amount to anything. They're, they're distracting diversions. You might say they're, they're sub-moronic. They're not worth engaging in, but they're there. And there are things that have to do with debating the meaning of words and genealogies. Uh, these people, I would say, are self-appointed thorns in the flesh. I think they know what they're doing. They're not looking for the truth. They don't really want to know the truth. They're just, as you would say in philosophy, gadflies, confusing things, trying to disturb things. But the thing is, it's not just surfacey arguments. People like that who are doing things like that in the church, actually, they're breeding quarrels. They're not looking for answers. The end product is disputes and infighting. Such an attitude is unbecoming of a Christian, and it's an atmosphere that is unbecoming of a church if those things are allowed to go on. And so those who embrace error, those who are involving themselves in these stupid or ignorant or submoronic things, they breed quarrels. And the problem with that is, again, it's not just service, but it causes, it causes division. It promotes disunity. That's what Paul says here. The wranglings left to fester their cause real problems. And the thing about people like that is the fact is that they are fools 
And fools don't really want to reason. They don't want to reason. They are not really interested in sound doctrine. And so you really can't expect them to comply to Scripture or to reason. But that's never an excuse for God's people, for the faithful, to go down that road. To get into a tit-for-tat. To get into that kind of wrangling, the people of God are to rise above it with proper demeanor and proper approach. Never compromising the truth, but standing firm. That's what Paul is saying about the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant has a certain demeanor. I offer a couple of things here. First of all, he reasons biblically. He or she reasons biblically. They engage wisely and they're striving for unity. And so first of all, they reason biblically, using the word as the foundation for any kind of engagement on things to do with faith. Constantly going back to Scripture, as we read earlier, rightly dividing the word. I'm sorry, earlier in 2 Timothy, rightly dividing the word, using the word of God appropriately. Granted, there will be differences of interpretation. But be sure that we're going back to Scripture and using Scripture to interpret Scripture. There may be differences, but it is never to descend into ridiculousness in argumenting, argue, arguing over things of Scripture. The servant of God engages wisely with those within the church and those outside the church. I want you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 26 because I want you to see that something that seems to be a contradiction is very much instructive for the people of God. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. In other words, don't engage on the level of a fool of a disputer, of a troublemaker. You'll become like him yourself. But then it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on those two verses that seem contradictory, but I think what's going on there is understand your context. Understand who you're dealing with. And if you're dealing with someone who is foolish, you have to be wise in the rules of engagement. Now, there's going to be nine things here that the Lord's servant is to do under engaging wisely. And you don't have to remember them all. But the first one is to, to deal with a fool according to his folly. The second thing is understand when you get to the point that you're throwing pearls at swine. Sounds like a terrible statement. Who would ever call another human being swine, but understand that it's a figure of speech. But understand when your engagement has become worthless because the people with whom you're engaging are obstinate, who want to either trip you up, argue with you, 
for whom nothing might ever be right. That happens in churches where you might get somebody who never sees the right things your church is doing. They just want to critique and criticize all the time. Understand that to try to work with them, there may come a point that they don't really have an interest in the truth or in peace or anything. And when it comes to believers, you will come across unbelievers who you will come across people who really don't want to know the truth. They just want to give you a hard time. Some have legitimate questions, granted, but others just want to defend themselves, make excuses for their unbelief. Some will actually want to trip you up and make you look like an idiot or drag you down so that your faith stumbles. Misery loves company. And there may come a point where you have to say it's not worth engaging them anymore. Jesus says so much at one point. Now, that's not to say those people can never get saved, but in their current state of being and state of mind, you're not going to get anywhere. We always trust the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, but there is such a thing as a hard heart. Know a fool and his folly. Understand when you're throwing pearls at swine. Always act in patience. Be patient. Especially with people who have genuine questions, who maybe have these foolish ideas about God and Scripture, but they're at least willing to engage. Be patient. Take your time. Hear people out. I've tried to learn sometimes with my own Family, if they have questions about Scripture, maybe I don't know the answer, but maybe I do. But I want to know from them, why do you believe that? It's a good thing for parents to do with youth. If they are coming up with something that's contrary to Scripture or contrary to something that's according to sound doctrine, sometimes you might have to say, you know, I honestly don't know the answer. But I think a very good way to approach it is to say, what, why do you believe that? How did you come to that conclusion? How does that line up with what you understand about Scripture? And then gentleness. That's actually what Paul says directly here. There's a proper place for rebuke. But if you're going to rebuke somebody for error, never do so from a position of superiority. Never from a position of superiority coming across as harsh and accusatory, but be gentle. Someone suggested that when we're engaged in situations like this, that we tap into the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Imagine this, God has given us the fruit of the Spirit. We take that engaging with others with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What a tremendous guide for a conversation about the Lord and about Scripture. Knowing a fool, pearls at swine, patience, gentleness, be approachable. Don't be that person that nobody feels like they can talk to because you're either an angry person or a resistant person or a know-it-all. Watch your tone. We don't think a lot about our tone sometimes, but interpersonal communication skills is something that every Christian should work on. 
work hard to develop. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. I was once witness to an explosive argument. Terrible, terrible argument. Blew up. And not even saying who was right or who was wrong in the whole ugly mess, one of the individuals said, I may have angrily yelled and screamed, but what I said was true. And I want to say, my friend, you lost them. What you said might have been true, but you lost them because of your tone and because of your attitude and because of what was welling up in your heart. Humility. Pointing out sinful positions, actions have to be called out but it needs to be done with humility. Remember that you're a sinner. We need to remember that we're sinners. It helps us, doesn't it, to deal with other people in their sin? I recently heard of an illustration, and it's an illustration that I myself had lived. I backed into my father's car when I was a teenager, young teenager, didn't know how to drive, dumbly sitting in the car, backed into my dad's car, did serious damage to it, lied about it. Not to my credit. I'm not going to say that was the last time I backed into a car in my driveway. But I will say that when my own, I'll be general people in my family, backed into a car in my driveway, I wasn't upset. I understood. I was even asked by one individual, you didn't get mad. I understood. That's what sin is like. If we understand we're sinners, we're going to understand that people are sinners. And if they're confused and if they're in error, even if they're behaving wrongly, we have no position to stand condescendingly over them. So humility, winsomeness, some people hate that word winsomeness when it comes to being Christians, but we can't afraid to be pleasant company without compromise. But I'm, I'm convinced, I've never seen the benefits of a Christian who's obnoxious and edgy. I've just not seen it. There's no place for yelling, there's no place for belittling, no place to make anyone feel stupid, enter into sarcasm. Never a time to go into ad hominem. That's when you attack a person as an individual when you're in an argument. You know how that goes. I'm sure we've all done it. We're in an argument that's up here about something important. We come down here where it starts to get intense and then finally it's, yeah, but you do this. No place for that. Instead, being winsome, approachable. And then finally, under the Lord's servant, as engaging wisely, no resentment. No resentment. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil. 
if you stick with scripture, and if you're arguing, I guess we can use that word, if we're engaging with scripture, we're on good standing. And if we are attacked because of it, it's not us that they're attacking ultimately. It's God. I had a conversation with a young covenant breaker, someone who once professed the faith and they completely fell away both in their thinking and in their lifestyle. And I was able to have a fairly long conversation with them about why they got to the point where they were not only denying Christ, but living in open sin. And in that conversation, one thing after another they leveled was the church does this. People in the church believe that. The people in the church do this. The church does that. The church this. God's uh, Christians do this. Christians say that. And each and every thing they brought up had nothing to do with the personality or character of people in the church. It had everything to do with what Scripture said. And I was able to say to them, your issue is not with the church. Your issue is with the Bible. Your issue is with God. Not that we're above reproach as a church or as churches. The issue ultimately is with God. And so when people fight with us about the truth, we can't take it personally. Yeah, in a way we do because we own it and we love it. And we know it's true. We know in the depths of our hearts that our faith is true. It's real. And when someone attacks it, yes, it hits us. But ultimately, we can't take it personally. Patiently enduring evil. No resentment. Well, proper decorum. I think about Jesus. There were times when Jesus was furious. He put the Pharisees in their place because they were doing so much damage. He was indignant with the disciples when they went to keep the children away from him. He was troubled by the disciples' slowness. He was angry with the money changers in the temple, but I am sure, however he's depicted that, he wasn't stark raving mad like some people with sinful anger issues can be. He had righteous indignation in its proper place and its proper time. But in our context, I think of the way that he dealt with people, some that were in error. I think of the way he so gently dealt with a Samaritan woman at the well. He didn't belittle her. He engaged her theological question with patience and with truth. I think of the way that Jesus dealt with Nicodemus. Yes, he called him out the fact that he should have known better, but he didn't, he wasn't harsh. He told Nicodemus the truth of truths that because of sin, he must be born again. I think of 
Paul in Athens when he's dealing with a bunch of pagans who are worshiping false gods. And instead of telling them how ignorant and foolish and stupid that is, which it is, and we do have that in Old Testament prophecy and even in a psalm, he simply looks for a way to present the gospel to these poor lost sinners. There is an unknown God that you can know. And that unknown God provided Jesus. I think of issues of doctrine in the church. I think of how many arguments in seminary we would argue, and it almost seems like that was the place to do it. Bulldozers, throwing things at each other, not literally. Maybe it wasn't so appropriate always. I think of issues of doctrine. Think of the issue of people who believe that man has a completely free will, that he's able to choose God, that he's good at heart as opposed to biblical doctrine. I don't know anybody who's been persuaded from what we know as Arminianism or Pelagianism, if you know those terms, to become biblical in doctrine reform by being yelled at. If you sit down with somebody who believes in scripture and they're in error, take them to Ephesians 1 and 2. Take them to Romans 9. Take them to Jesus' statements. If they're having a hard time understanding predestination. If you can explain that on your own, all power to you. If you want to show somebody how those are biblical truths, just patiently walk them through what the word of God says. Because I can tell you arguing is not going to get you anywhere. And acting like that you're bright and brilliant because you've become a five-point Calvinist is totally inappropriate. You've heard me say, that reformed people should be the most humble people ever because we understand that it's all of grace. All of grace. The same is true with moral issues. We argue with people or we engage with people on the sanctity of marriage or the sanctity of life. We need to understand from Scripture, take people to Scripture, especially erring Christians. Well, God's servant promotes harmony, not, not disunity. And hopefully detractors will appreciate the demeanor and calm of well-reasoned, well-schooled, deeply convicted Christians. For a gentle calm, especially the leadership that will shape the atmosphere of the church. You don't know how much I deeply appreciate the atmosphere here. I've worked with churches that are divided. I've worked with churches that are full of strife. I've been in churches that dealt with strife and division. And I am thankful every single day and pray for this, people, because it's nothing that we can take for granted. Pray for the continued peace and unity of this body of Christ. It's unbelievable because of sin how fragile that can be. Well, I need to touch on, and probably too briefly, the whole goal, the whole goal is to reclaim the troublers. 
certainly there is a place to deal with a contention. Contentious. Remember, Paul had to put out two people, put them out of the church, hand them over to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. He had to do that for the sake of the church. That has to be done when someone's causing trouble in the church. I think very often we're too slow. I regret as a leader sometimes having been way too slack, not swiftly acting enough on people causing trouble in the church. But that's in the past. But I've seen what that can do to a church. But there are also people who have genuine concerns, confusion, and questions. There are people who are facing falsehoods and that get caught up in dumb ideas and and these submoronic things. There are people who are in darkness. We need to be there to help straighten them out. Even those who are trifling in foolish things are in grave danger. We'll see that in just a moment. See just how much trouble they're in. They need to be saved from ignorance and sin and from Satan. The goal is found in verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 25 and 26. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That they would see the light of the truth. And seeing the light of the truth, they would repent not only of their error and unbelief, in what the scripture says, but also of their sins, so that they might see the Savior. But notice how strongly Paul puts it, that they would escape from the snare of the devil. And so people, whoever we interact with regarding the faith, may we do so with grace and integrity for the good of their souls and for the good of the church. Jesus, so patient with Nicodemus, ends up being a believer in the end. The woman at the well, so excited about her faith, she goes and tells others. We find out that Paul, after preaching in Athens, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. And then some names are named. They've come from error to belief. Here's how James puts it at the end of his letter. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for your great mercy towards us. Lord, none of us stands in a position of pride. What we know of you, what we know of our Savior, is all of your grace. 
and has to do with the power of your Holy Spirit opening our hearts and our minds to the truth. We have no boast. Our salvation is by grace alone through faith that we can't even claim to have come up with ourselves, but a gift from you. Lord, we do pray that you would help us as we do want to and need to engage people with your word, that we would do so without compromise, standing firm on your truth, but that we would also do it with a great measure of grace. Lord, rebuking when appropriate, but learning from our Lord Jesus, learning from the Apostle Paul, from your word to do so with integrity, with biblical reasoning, with gentleness and kindness, and ultimately with the love of souls and your glory in mind. Help us, we pray, as we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is so patient with us, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Amen.